Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with CEI. My name is Erica Bostic, and I am an adolescent medicine physician and faculty for CEI. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Rachel Phelps, a family planning expert who has provided contraceptive and abortion care at Planned Parenthood of Central and Western New York for over 20 years, of which she served for 13 years as medical director. She received her medical degree from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and completed a pediatrics residency and a family planning fellowship at the University of Rochester. She is currently a clinical instructor in the departments of pediatrics and OBGYN at the University of Rochester. She lectures locally and nationally about the prevention of unintended pregnancy, evidence-based contraception, and reproductive health care access. All right, so I'm thrilled to have Dr. Phelps with us to talk about everything related to reproductive health. I want to focus on being proactive, so contraception, and then we can also touch upon what happens if someone does have a pregnancy that they don't want to continue. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Phelps. Thank you so much for asking me to do this today. So we know that reproductive health, this is an emotionally charged topic, especially with Roe v. Wade being overturned. It's caused a lot of concern within the medical community about the implications of this decision. Reproductive health care is a critical part of healthcare overall. Yet components of that care, including abortions, being inaccessible to part of the population will likely cause further marginalization, stigmatization, and inequity. I know as a physician, ally, and advocate myself, this is quite terrifying. What has been your impression about the changing times overall? Well, I mean, I think it's incredibly concerning. And I think it's concerning beyond what people are thinking. Like, obviously, it's concerning for people accessing abortion, which is a huge concern, but it's also going to affect how people get their miscarriages managed, how people get their ectopics treated, how people have complications of pregnancy treated, or when something goes wrong with a pregnancy, like a fetal anomaly, this is going to have really wide, wide ranging impacts on people's overall health and maternal health and pregnancy health. And that's of course, as always going to disproportionately affect people with the least resources, people living in poverty, people of color and young people because of racism, sexism, and everything else. I also think that because I know our audience is mostly New Yorkers, or maybe not, maybe not all New Yorkers, that you know, we are very protected in New York State, and we are very lucky that we are protected in New York State. There are no restrictions around accessing abortion. We do not require parental consent for contraception or abortion. That, of course, is not true in most of the country at this point. I do think there's a little bit of a false sense of safety, though, that people think, well, this isn't going to As a New Yorker, like obviously I'm worried about people in the whole country, but as a New Yorker, I don't need to worry about my own patients because I'm in New York, right? And I think that that's not completely true. I think that's not true for multiple reasons. But I think one of the biggest is, is that we are already, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, seeing people coming in from other states to seek abortions here. I've seen tons of patients from Pennsylvania, Ohio, but just in the past couple of weeks, Florida, Tennessee, Texas, Alabama. And so it's really important to understand that as more and more states, you know, abortion laws go into effect and abortion is basically illegal, more and more people are going to be coming into New York State seeking abortion. And that's going to 
decrease the access for new workers. It's going to be harder to get appointments. It's going to be harder to get in. And I also think that there's so much confusion. You know, for those of us who think about this all the time, we're like, oh, we understand what's happening and where it's legal and where it's not. But I think particularly for young people, for Black folks, for people living in poverty, they may not really understand. They may hear Roe v. Wade's overturned and think abortion's illegal in New York State. And so I think we're also going to see people, even in New York State, seeking to manage their own abortions because they're confused and don't know that they can get a safe legal abortion in New York State. A lot of people never thought this could happen at a federal level, but it did. And so, you know, we can't just live in our New York bubble and hope for the best. I think we really need to be proactive and prepare. And I think a lot of folks listening to this podcast are healthcare providers who may or may not dabble in reproductive health care. And maybe it's it's smart to just kind of start with reproductive health care, right? I think a lot of people think, oh, abortions, right? But there's so much more to that. And in the spirit of being proactive, let's talk about contraception options. Let's talk about actually preventing unintended pregnancies. As experts in the field, how can we disseminate knowledge and resources to those clinicians in the state who want to help maybe decompress Planned Parenthood, decompress those who are really on the front lines providing reproductive health care. So maybe starting, what is your definition of reproductive health care? What services are involved? Reproductive health care to me is very broad. It's going to include, you know, contraception, having healthy pregnancies, preventing pregnancy when you don't want to be pregnant, uh, miscarriage management, abortion care, sexually transmitted infections, screening for preventing, treating. And I think I would probably include healthy sexuality in that as well. So that would include like gender affirming hormone care and care for people who are trans and non-binary. But, you know, for the purpose of sort of what we're talking about today, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, I think if, if people are concerned about like, what can I do? Or if people are thinking like, oh, I don't need to do anything because I'm in New York State. Like, yes, there are things you need to do. And yes, you absolutely need to do them, even if you are in New York State. And one of the things that, you know, this is the work that I've been doing for over 20 years. This is like all I think about. But one of the things that is still really frustrating for me, pre-row being overturned, how many people I see being coming to me needing an abortion because their healthcare providers inadequately trained around contraception and are either placing barriers in front of them that are not evidence-based or are unnecessary logistically, or just aren't offering a full range of contraception. Our medical education system does not really value contraception, just to spend a lot of time adequately training folks in contraception. And so I think the first thing you can do, which is good to, to, you know, in this sort of like emergent way of decompressing the need for abortion, but I think aside from all of that, it's just good for your patients, is we should be doing everything in our power to prevent an unintended pregnancy. And because I don't want anybody needing to have an abortion if they don't have to, right? So I think everybody needs to stop and think. And I mean, every specialty, every healthcare provider needs to stop and think like, what can they do? And I would advocate that whatever you're doing, take the next step. Like you don't have to go from like, I don't even provide contraception to like, I'm going to start providing medication abortion, right? Take the next step. If you're not providing contraception, start providing contraception. Start with pills, patch, ring, the shot. If you're providing the pill, patch, ring, and the shot, take the next step and start providing the contraceptive implant next one on. If you're providing the contraceptive implant next one on, take the next step and start providing IUDs, right? If you're doing all of that, then I think take the next step and consider medication abortion, which we're going to talk about, I think, later in today's podcast that medication abortion itself has become really demedicalized. It's very low resource. You don't need all the resources to provide it. And it's very simple. And there's places to get trained. And we're going to talk about that. But to just sort of, before we jump to that, let's talk a little bit more about contraception. And so 
there are, you know, there's lots of great resources online for training. The reality is things like birth control pills, the vaginal ring, the patch, the shot are all very easy to prescribe. And so the two resources that I would recommend for folks that would basically tell you everything you need to know would be the CDC U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria, which basically has every medical condition, every drug, postpartum, breastfeeding, obesity, age, like anything medically that would be an issue with a particular method, it will tell you whether you can use that method or not. It's super easy. You don't need to know anything. You don't need to you know, use your brain. You just, and it's actually, so you literally don't need to know anything to know who can safely use what methods. You just need to use the app. The second piece that's on that same app, and these are also things that you, if you just search them, you can download the document as well for free from the CDC, but also included in the app is the Selected Practice Recommendations or the SPR, which tells you in very simple terms, basically everything you need to know clinically of how to start a new method, how to switch between methods, what do you do if somebody forgets a pill, like just all the basic nuts and bolts. And there's a great little booklet called Managing Contraception, which costs about $10 or $15, which again, has everything you need to know about contraception in it. This stuff is not that complicated, which is sort of the irony of it. Is I think in some ways it's, it's not taken seriously because they're like, oh, birth control, that's like poofy, fluffy stuff. We're not going to, it's not that complicated. We're not going to take care of it. But then the minute anybody wants to try to prescribe it, they're like, oh, I don't know anything about birth control, right? So that's the first thing I would say for those simple things like pills, patch, ring, depo. If you want to go to the next step, which would be the next Nexplanon, that's an implant that, again, one of the simplest procedures in the world. It is so easy. It takes three minutes to place, three minutes to remove. It's just an incredibly simple procedure. And the nice thing about it is there is a free two-hour hands-on training that is provided by the company that makes um, the Nexplanon, which is actually a day required that you go through the training. You can request a training. And so you can, and, and they will give you all the support you need of how to bill for it, how to order devices, and how to get your, your providers trained. I think another thing to think is like, if you're in a practice where there's like one person who's trained to do Nexplanon, and so patients can get an Nexplanon on every third Thursday, like that's not really great access. Like go to the next step, get the rest of your providers trained in Nexplanon, right? If you're already trained in Nexplanon, I would look at some of the systems within your practice. Are you, is anybody who walks in any day of the week who decides they want an Nexplanon, can they get it that day? Do you have the devices in stock? You know, are you telling people to go away while you order it? Are you telling people they have to come back another day for another visit? It's important to remember the minute you send anybody away who needs contraception, the chance that they make it back drops off significantly. And that's even greater if people are living in poverty or of color or are young, and they're very likely to get pregnant in the meantime. And, and so looking at those practices, making sure that if somebody wants it that day, they get it that day whenever possible. I think the same thing, even let me take a step back. Even if right now all you're doing is pills, patch, ring, and the shot, I would again, look at the practices in your office. Like, cause a lot, I know when I do these trainings, a lot of people are doing really outdated practice that is creating unnecessary barriers to patients getting the method of their choice. One of the most common ones is for say depo is doing sort of like crazy things to rule out pregnancy. Whereas we know that the evidence-based recommendations, again, from the selective practice recommendations from the CDC is that for all methods, the exception being IUDs, that's a little more complicated, but for all of the birth control methods, we should be using what's called quick start, which means if the patient wants the method today, they start the method today, including the, the depo, including the implant. Even if they, ha- if they don't know when their last period was, even if they've had a ton of unprotected sex, if you're worried about pregnancy, you do a pregnancy test. 
that pregnancy test is negative. That tells you that any sex they had more than two weeks ago, they're not pregnant from. You don't know about the past two weeks, but one of the common barriers I see is, is people making people come back over and over, like abstain for two weeks so that you can be hundred percent sure that they're not pregnant before starting birth control, which is absolutely not medically necessary. Starting birth control today, even if they could have an early undetected pregnancy is not going to harm them. It's not going to harm the pregnancy. It's just going to put them at increased risk of getting pregnant. And so the evidence-based recommendations are start the method today. If you are concerned about an early undetected pregnancy, so they've had unprotected sex in the past two weeks, which wouldn't show up on your pregnancy test, just have them repeat a pregnancy test in, in two to three weeks. And then the second piece of that is being really sure that we tell people how long it takes for birth control to start working, right? That birth control takes seven days, not two weeks, not a month, not three months, seven days to start working. And so if you start your birth control today, I have to stop and think, what is today? Today is Monday. You will be prevented from getting pregnant next Monday. And so I think those things are really important because I do feel like even folks who are providing contraception are also do, often doing some sort of outdated stuff. And again, that resource I gave you, the selected practice recommendations, it's a very quick read for each method. You can just double check that you're doing the most up-to-date provision and not requiring testing or things that aren't necessary. Everybody's goal, and maybe I'm making an assumption here, but anyone who goes into medicine really has their patients in mind, right? We, we went into this field, not all of it's straightforward, but actually this is one of the most straightforward pieces of medicine. And I, I think really one of the core issues with this is the discomfort that a lot of clinicians feel in getting a sexual history. Because that's where it starts, right? The CDC has some great resources about how to ask the questions, practice the questions. And so really all of this with Roe v. Wade about abortion is, yes, really important and scary. At the same time, there is a lot that we can do without necessarily being the providers of abortion to kind of fix the upstream effects of this. And so I think you really bring up a bunch of great points here. Yeah. And, and I think I got myself a little bit like off track because I went, I went back thinking about, you know, how do we actually provide all these things well, right? Because, but sort of thinking about that stepwise thing, right? Like your first step is if you're not, if you're not doing anything, do pills, patch, ring and shot. If you're doing pills, patch, ring and shot, make sure you're doing it with the most updated evidence-based stuff. It will take you 10 minutes to read. If you're doing all of that, the next step is getting trained in Explanon. Again, super easy. If you're already doing that, increase your providers, make sure that you're not having any unnecessary barriers there. And then the final thing would be to, to provide IUDs, which also from one of the, there's three IUD companies, but from Bayer, which makes several of the IUDs, they actually provide also a free hands-on IUD training, which is, I mean, you've gone through it yes. and it's, it's great. I mean, they have these like amazing different sort of levels of simulators. You learn the clinical stuff around IUDs, but then you also uh, get to practice hands-on the procedures. Again, it's free and can be requested from there. And then after that, they also have a program where they will send a proctor out for free for you. So somebody like me who's really experienced, if you're the first one inserting IUDs in your clinic, they you would schedule multiple IUDs for that day and they would send somebody like me out to basically like be with you. It's a resource people don't really know about, but it is free and available from Bear as well. So there's actually really great resources for people that are out of training to get really good hands-on training um, and support for these procedures like the contraceptive implant and IUDs, which I do think people think like, oh, well, that's sort of outside of my realm. And it's really not. They're both very simple procedures, particularly the implant. 
So I just want to throw that out there too for folks that maybe are already farther along this path and want to go to the next step to know that those resources are out there. The other resource I want to mention, which is for patients. And again, if you're starting to think about, you know, offering contraception or you want to sort of improve the quality of the contraceptive services you're offering in your in your clinics, but maybe you don't feel, you know, you're not super comfortable counseling on all the different options. There's so many options available. You don't have time, all those things. There's a great website that's geared towards patients called bedsider.org. It's B-E-D-S-I-D-E-R.org. It is all medically accurate. It is has all these great videos. It's totally focused on like young people. It's fun. It's interactive. It's funny. It's got all these different like tools and ways for people to explore birth control on their own online and figure out what might be best for them. And so it's a great way if you just feel like, like I don't know enough about this and I don't have the time to talk about it, send your patients to that and then just be prepared to start them on whatever they want. Again, this stuff is pretty simple. And between bedsider.org for your patients to look at their options and the CDC resources of the US medical eligibility criteria and the SPR, like literally you don't need to know anything else. It's all right there. Those, those apps are super user-friendly and it's the most evidence-based best practice ways to do it. This stuff is not, it doesn't need to be scary. It's not complicated. I've used Bedsider many times, really, because you just pull it up on the computer screen there. Even like you said, if you don't have time to go through it, you can at least give a like quick orientation to it. You click on all these different methods. And really, and it's a very inclusive resource too. They've got gender diverse people on videos. They have partners of people talking about how you know their partner, it was a joint decision to not get pregnant at this time. And really that shared decision-making is so important and probably not talked about a lot. Certainly. And, and other things that you mentioned too, you know, I think regardless of what field you're in, in medicine, we can all relate to these very common workflow challenges, right? And time management is a work in progress for most of us. We've got 15 minutes for a follow-up, but even if you just sort of touch upon like, Hey, are you thinking about getting pregnant or we're starting this other medication, right? Part of the checkboxes for some of these, you know, immunosuppressant drugs and other medications that may be in your wheelhouse, you know, you do need to think about pregnancy intention. You do need to think about, you know, what resources for both you and the patient are going to be available for you to safely prescribe the other medicine that you're more familiar with. And so really, I, I do think these resources are really helpful, both from a patient perspective and a clinician perspective. And so thank you for sharing them. Yeah. And I think, you know, just planting, planting the seed with your patients and letting them know that this is something that they can talk to you about that, that you offer, that they don't have to go someplace else, right? Then again, the minute you send somebody away to go someplace else, any place else, whether that is an OBGYN or Planned Parenthood or just come back another day, the chance that that's going to happen drops significantly. And the more sort of, you know, structural barriers that person is facing, the less likely that is that is to happen. And I just want to jump on what you said about Bedsider. The other really great resource on Bedsider is they have great resources for you in the office. They have these great, like one page, like visual handouts that show just on one single page pictures of all of the birth control methods comparing them how well they work, just some really great tools to use as well. And it's nice, like you said, you know, you don't, even if you have 15 minutes to talk about asthma, right? Like, even if that's, you know, contraception is not the chief complaint for your visit, just simply letting someone know that, hey, I know this is not the focus today, but want to just be sure that you know that I'm the type of clinician that you can talk to if you have questions about this. You know, in adolescent medicine, this comes up a lot. 
And so we're pretty seasoned in having these conversations, but we know that that's not applicable to everybody in terms of the workflow protected to have these conversations. Chat with your practice manager, kind of examine your workflows. And if you're doing it already, how can you optimize what you already have to break down those barriers and facilitate same-day access, right? That would be the ideal. And there's lots of challenges there. So I think these are all relevant to, to people. And if you've found a good workflow for some other type of prescribing practice, see how that can apply to this too. I mean, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. A lot of people are doing really cool things. And like you said, this is not as hard as I think some folks think it is. They're doing lots of hard stuff. And so I do think it's worth kind of thinking critically about. Well, and I think the other thing to remember too is, is that you may think like, oh, well, my patients don't aren't, aren't interested in this, or this isn't something they need. Or, But the reality is like, if you want to have two kids, you have to prevent pregnancy for 30 years, like for your female cisgender bodied patients. And then obviously your trans men patients need to think about this too, but this is an issue for them. Whether they have kids, they want kids, it is an issue. And we have unreasonably high rates of unintended pregnancy in the U.S. compared to other countries with the same resources as we do. And it's because we do a terrible job in medicine of talking about these issues and taking them seriously and bringing them up. And we have so many barriers to access to healthcare and access to, to healthcare in general, but then even more so anything that involves reproductive healthcare, because as a society, we're not super comfortable talking about these things, either with our, in our own families, with our kids, and even sometimes in the, in the medical office. And so I think it's just really important to realize that as much as you may think this, oh, this isn't, something my patients need. If you've got if you've got patients with uteruses between the ages of 16 and 40, you know, and 50, uh, you, they absolutely do. And, and they're going to probably need this more as a form of healthcare than anything else they're going to need. And that part of their life. And so making sure that people have access to that is really, really important. So let's say that, you know, you have the greatest workflow in place. You feel really competent in providing comprehensive contraception to your patients and you want to do more. What could be next for that person? So the thing I would think of next, I mean, the the first thing I guess is to think about when you're delivering the news that somebody has a positive pregnancy test, are you just assuming if you're dealing with an adult patient, are you just assuming they want to be pregnant? If you're dealing with a teen, are you just assuming they don't want to be pregnant? Either of those things are good, right? Like, so I would start by saying like, what's your, you know, how comfortable are you with sort of doing actual routine pregnancy options counseling? Because again, remember, if half of pregnancies in the US are unintended, which they are, then, and that's for adult women, not, not talking about teens, adult women, highest rates of unintended pregnancy are women in their twenties. Number one is you know, 20 to 25, number two, 25 to 30, number three is teens. I feel like when we think about teens, we forget about adult women. And the reality is if you're doing a pregnancy test in any context, whether that be in primary care, the emergency room, anywhere, if it's positive with an adult woman, it is a 50-50 chance that is a wanted planned pregnancy. And I think we often just assume that if it's adult, it's wanted. And so I think the first thing is starting by like not making that assumption, because if you make that assumption, they're unlikely to tell you that it's not. And then now they're sort of on their own and they've lost an opportunity. So the first step, again, is to start with that. Like, are you routinely, when you're giving pregnancy test results that are positive, not making the assumption that's a wanted pregnancy? Are you doing pregnancy, you know, good, basic? Again, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't take a long time. But just saying, hey, your pregnancy test is positive. Is this something that you were planning? Is this something that you weren't planning? You know, is this good news, bad news? Like, how do you feel about this result? Um, just leaving that door open. 
I think the second step is for people who do not want to be pregnant right now and want an abortion, are you referring them? Do you know where the local referral sources are? Do you know who's offering medication abortion in your community? Do you know who's offering surgical abortion community? Or are you sending them off sort of on their own? Are you making sure that you know where the crisis pregnancy centers are so that you're not accidentally sending them to something that you think is giving them resources and counseling that's actually not a real clinic using like very biased, not medically accurate techniques to keep people from having abortions? So that would be sort of the next step. If you're doing all of that and you want to do more, you know, it turns out offering medication abortion is really easy. And again, I know it sounds a little crazy, but we used to, you know, medication abortion was really over-medicalized the way we've been offering it. And over the past five years or so, we've really worked to look at what is the evidence, what we're doing, and, and trying to simplify medication abortion, um, make it evidence-based, and demedicalize it. Because it turns out you really don't need to do that much other than prescribe the medication. In the past, we were doing ultrasounds and testing for RH and giving Rogam and testing hemoglobins and doing STI screening, like all these things that made it very complicated and sort of like just too much, right? For somebody who's not already doing a lot of reproductive health services and GYN services to consider. But now the evidence-based provision of medication abortion for gestational age dating, you do not need to do an ultrasound. You can rely just on a last menstrual period. An estimated last menstrual period is 97% accurate alone if they're certain it's 98%. So it's even not even that different. Again, for medication abortion, you know, we do it generally up to 11 weeks, but we know those medicines work and are safe up to 12 or even 13 weeks. So you're not, you don't need a precise gestational age estimate. You're just trying to figure out, are they under roughly under 11 weeks? And so the current recommendations are you can do that with a last menstrual period. You don't need to do ultrasound. We, you do not need to do any blood work. You, patients do not need Rogam if they're arch negative, which means you don't need to determine their blood type if they're uh, under 12 weeks. So again, for medication abortion, you don't need to worry about blood type. You don't need to worry about Rogam. You don't need to do STI screening. You don't need to do hemoglobin or hematocrit. So there's no lab work needed, no ultrasounds needed. The screening can simply be last menstrual period dating based on that. And obviously, you want to make sure they're not having a lot of pain or bleeding or anything that would be a sign of a problem like an ectopic pregnancy. And then you provide the medications and instructions. Follow-up can be done with a urine pregnancy test four to five weeks later. Um, so again, you don't need anything. You don't need lab work or an ultrasound for follow-up. You definitely want to do you know, some phone call follow-up, usually about a week, or have them come back to the clinic just to make sure that you know, they had cramping and bleeding and it seemed like things worked, that they aren't having any continuing pregnancy symptoms, that you're just screening up for anything that would be a sign that the medicines didn't work. And then otherwise they do a pregnancy test in at four to five weeks. And, and that's it. The medication abortion pill, Mifepristone, costs $60. There are, you can order it uh, to have in your clinic. There are resources that can help you with this. Misoprostol is the second medication um, that they use at home. We just use ibuprofen for pain control, so it doesn't involve prescribing any narcotics or any of that. It's a very simple, safe procedure. It is effective at ending a pregnancy 99% of the time. And there are some really great resources if you want to get some training on, on one, both medically how to provide medication abortion, how to give people the instruction, you know, the proper instructions, and even how to like set things up, like how to order the medications. And that resource is abortionpillcme.teachtraining.org. That's abortionpillcme.teachtraining.org. 
And another great resource is the Society for Family Planning website, which is societyfp.org, which also has the evidence around these newer recommendations for sort of a demedicalized medication abortion process. That is fascinating because I think, again, due to these knowledge gaps that can easily be filled if you know the proper resources and you just named several, you know, I think we as even clinicians overcomplicate and overmedicalize things just based on like what we think or feel, you know, rather than what we know. And I think it's also important to remember everything should be a risk benefit relationship, but we need to really view all of the risks, the potential medical complications with contraception and or abortions through the lens of the alternative being a pregnancy, which also comes with so much risk, right? Especially in America in general, yes, but you know, not only is it the medical, emotional, and psychological risks that can come with an unintentional pregnancy, and we know from the Turnaway study, which has, you know, is really a very interesting study to check out if you've never looked at it. They compared people coming for an abortion in the first trimester, people coming in the second trimester who were within two weeks of a gestational age limit. Um, and, and basically there was like the people who were, say, say the gestational age limit in the clinic or the, or the state was 20 weeks. So anybody who came between 18 to 20 weeks and got their abortion was compared long-term the people that were between 20 and 22 weeks who didn't get their abortion. So again, they're coming in about the same gestational age, all of those risk factors that are putting them for why are they seeking an abortion later in pregnancy, which are going to be, you know, poverty, resources, domestic violence, substance use, you know, all those things that put people at high risk of not accessing it in the first trimester. Um, so that's all the same. And they looked at the long-term health of psychological, physical health of those women and the children that they had. Um, if they had that pregnancy that was not wanted, but they ended up obviously continuing because they couldn't get an abortion. And then the other children that they had prior to that, which I think is something that people, again, we often think when we think about abortion and unintended pregnancy, everybody thinks about teenagers. And the reality is it's not, it's rarely teenagers. It's mostly women in their twenties and it's mostly women who already have children, usually young children. And so what they found was, is that the women who got turned away for their abortion had, were much more likely to be living in poverty. Those kids were much more likely to be homeless, to not have adequate food. There were just all kinds of negative outcomes for that woman and her, that child. And so I think that there are real, there are real serious life consequences. This is not, this is not a little inconvenience. I also think the other, the other piece to remember too is that person who doesn't access an abortion and get, to, you know, there's the like continuing the pregnancy that you didn't want and aren't prepared for, or that's going to strain your family and the children you already have and what you're providing for them. But there's also the, what is somebody going to do if they still are going to pursue that abortion and can't get it from somebody who knows, you know, from a medical standpoint, right? Like, what are they going to try on their own? What are they going to find on the internet? What are they going to potentially do if they don't get access to good information that could be harmful? And, and so it's also important to know that we are going to be seeing, again, because you can't just assume somebody in, in New York State understands that abortion is still legal here or has access to it. If somebody is undocumented or doesn't have money or doesn't know that there are programs to pay for it, still may try to do things themselves. And it's important to understand that that puts them at risk if they do something that's not safe and effective. But it's also important to know that these same medications that we're talking about for medication abortion, where I'm saying like, this is super safe, like really anybody can do this as far as medically, that the reality is there's really good evidence to say that people don't even necessarily need a healthcare person, right? Like that 
these medicines are incredibly safe and the instructions are pretty simple. And that we know that people who just access these medications online without any healthcare provider and do a medication abortion with the actual medications self-managed, that that is very safe and very effective. And we also just need to recognize that we're going to be seeing that happening more and that we need to educate ourselves so that we're not stigmatizing an option that's actually very safe. And that we sort of know how to help and manage those people if they come to us after they've you know, gotten some medications online and now they're worried, like, am I still pregnant? Did it work? Um, am I still bleeding? To like, Because those people are going to show up anywhere to be able to say, like, this is what we need to do. And so it is actually safe and effective. And so I think that's another thing to know about is there's a lot of good evidence-based resources online now for people who are trying to sew things like Hey Jane that's, that provides telehealth direct-to-patient medication abortion in New York State. Um, there are websites like INeedNA.com and PlanCPills.org, both of which tell you like where to get abortions safely if you want to go to a clinic, but also how to do it yourself by ordering medications online and giving accurate you know, instructions and cautions so that people can manage themselves if that's what they feel like um, is best for them or if that's all they feel like they have access to. Those are great points and really so important that we know about these options because these options are going to be critical for patients who, and inside New York State, we are not immune to to all this, even though we have legislation to protect comprehensive reproductive health in the state. We border other states, people move all the time, and we don't want to be stigmatizing anyone accidentally. No, and it's been looked at and it turns out it's, you know, obviously, is it better if they can come to their own doctor and get this from their own doctor? Yes. Absolutely. Is it safe for them if they feel like their only option is to do it online and ordering medications online? Yes. And we need to be supporting that and making sure that we're there to help folks who have done that, reassure them to know like how long, you know, to know it may take five weeks for a pregnancy test to go to become negative after medication abortion. And that having a positive pregnancy test three weeks later doesn't mean it didn't work, right? And how to figure those things out you know, is important and how to support patients so that they feel comfortable coming to you. And I think the other thing we need to remember is, yes, abortion is very safe in New York State right now, but things can change. Absolutely. So this is a really important topic. We talked about a lot of different things. What are your biggest takeaways for our listeners today? I think my biggest takeaway is to just take that whatever you're doing, take the next step. You don't have to go from not providing contraception to providing medication abortion, right? But take the next step. And then after you do that, take the next step after that, right? So again, if you're not providing contraception, start providing pills, patch, ring, depot. Use these resources we've given you. It's not complicated. If you're already providing those, check out the resources we gave you and make sure you're not, you know, you don't have any unnecessary barriers in your in your provision. The biggest one being the crazy, the ruling out pregnancy to the crazy nth degree kind of thing. That if you have a negative pregnancy test today, they can get the birth control method of choice today. I think then if you're doing that, get, reach out to get trained in Nexplanon. That's a super easy procedure. If you're doing that, but you're not stocking the devices, advocate in your clinic to stock the devices. If you don't have a system where you can do it same day and people have to come back for another appointment, advocate within your clinic, get together with other providers. How can you fix that? How can you have all, get all the providers trained if only one is? And then after that, get IUD training. It's a simple procedure. There's great resources for this training. Same thing about access. Talk, look at, and I would say like wherever you are on that, on that path, I would at the same time, look at your practices around how you're delivering uh, a positive pregnancy test. Pregnancy tests are the most common test that we do in medicine. And it's the thing that I feel like I can't believe how terrible we are at, at pregnancy options. And I think it's because we assume 
that if we're dealing with an adult, it's a wanted pregnancy. And again, 50-50 chance it's wanted and 50-50 chance it's not wanted. So one, educating you and your staff about that so you're even open to the idea and just making sure that you're not making assumptions about all pregnancies being wanted and that you have good, you know, you know what your good local resources are for abortions. And you also know what the, what the sort of direct-to-patient telehealth options are in New York State, like Hey Jane and some of these other things where, and even Planned Parenthood has some now in some parts of the, the state where people can get access, even if you're a rural area, they don't have to go to a physical clinic to get a medication abortion. And again, the majority of abortions are done at eight weeks or less, which means the majority of people need an abortion are at a gestational age where they can get a medication abortion. And I would say probably 80 to 85% are at least under 11 weeks and could get a medication abortion. So educate yourself and your staff about those things. And then again, if you've done all of that, then you can think about, you know, do you want to look at providing medication abortions in your office? Is that something you want to pursue? But I think there's so much to do that's so important that can make such a huge difference in your patients' lives, whether they ever need an abortion or not. I feel like all these doctors, when Roe got overturned, were reaching out to me, I'm going to start providing abortions. And I'm like, how about you start providing some good contraceptive care? Because I know, you know what I mean? Because you're not, right? Like, how about you start stocking IUDs and implants in your office? How about you start getting all your providers trained to provide implants? Like everyone wants to jump to the sort of like dramatic hero thing when really the biggest difference, you know, if you never touch, if you never learn how to do medication abortion, but you do all this other stuff I'm saying to help prevent your patient's need for an abortion, prevent unintended pregnancy, you're going to do more good for your patients than you're ever going to do by just sort of jumping to like, oh, let's provide medication abortion, right? And I know because I see patients every week who are pregnant because of unnecessary barriers in their doctor's offices and poor, poor education around contraception who are pregnant because their doctors did not do a good job with contraception, including their OBGYNs, right? Like don't assume if you're sending your patients to an OBGYN that they're getting evidence-based care, that they're not running into these same provider barriers because I can tell you they are. Do what's in your power to get people access to the contraception they need. And so you can do a world of good by improving the contraceptive care that's happening in your own clinics, expanding it, making it better, removing unnecessary barriers to patients getting access to what they need to be healthy and happy and have a great life. There's so much to be done. There's so much that can be done. It starts with just simply asking some questions, right? Feeling more comfortable and competent doing that, using the resources. And like you said, you don't have to jump to abortion care. There's so much that can be done before the need for abortion or preventing the need for an abortion. So thank you for running us through all of those steps in great detail. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. We hope that our listeners found value in this. If you have questions, please check out other CEI podcasts. Check out www.ceitraining.org for a whole host of information about lots of sexual and reproductive health topics. And we look forward to seeing you at our next podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.